in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 this evening. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to start with uh, a passage of uh, Scripture you probably have heard before, uh, might be familiar with it to uh, to some degree, and um, uh, it's kind of a different one to to, uh, uh, to start with or to use regarding uh, healing and healing school, but uh, uh, we'll tie it all in together and hopefully you'll see where uh, where we're going with this, what the Lord's put on our heart. Luke chapter 12, verse, uh, we're going to start in verse 22. And Jesus said unto his disciples, he's just told them a story of the rich man who um, planned for his uh, uh, physical and financial well-being but um, uh, here on the earth but didn't take any um, account or give any attention to his spiritual well-being. And uh, the, that's the context of Jesus saying these next things. Verse 22, and he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, Neither for your body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment and and, uh, make a couple of comments. The word thought in verse 22, take no thought. The word thought in the Greek means to be anxious or to be torn apart. In other words, the the concept that he's uh, bringing out here is don't let your mind be pulled away into thinking wrong things. Where he's talking about taking no thought, he doesn't mean don't think about the things of the earth. You've got to think about the things of the earth. You gotta think, if you're gonna be responsible as a, as a, uh, a Christian, you're gonna to have to think about the bills that you owe and, the, you know, make arrangements to pay them and stuff like that. He's not saying you just float through life like a charismatic Christian and, you know, let things slide. That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't be torn apart in your thought life. Don't be anxious. Don't worry about things, uh, uh, things of this earth, the natural things of this earth. Now he's gonna tell them why. He's going to give them something to focus their thoughts on instead of being torn apart. But the point I want you to see is, notice how the devil tries to attack us. He tries to attack us by making us worry and to tear us apart in our thought life. In other words, to distract us from what we should be thinking by planning wrong thoughts in our minds. And Jesus recognizes this, and that's the context of what he's talking about. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought, don't be anxious, don't be torn apart in your thought life. For your life, talking about your life here on the earth, what you shall eat, neither for your body what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Now he's going to tell them what to think about. He said, don't let your thoughts be torn apart, you know, wavering back and forth and think different things, and don't let yourself get distracted. But here's what you need to think about. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, And God feeds them. How much more are you better than the fowls? In other words, he's saying, think about the right things by looking at things going on around you. You know, the devil tries to make you be aware of circumstance. But there's a lot of circumstances that you can look at that will strengthen your faith. Now, Jesus is saying, don't be worried about the things that the devil brings to you, the thoughts that the devil brings to your mind. You know, they're laying off at work. Am I going to lose my job and so on and so forth, whatever the case is. Am I going to have enough by the end of the the end of the month and and how am I going to make it and things like that. Just as the devil will bring the wrong thoughts and try to make you doubt God's word, Jesus is saying there are things around you that you can focus on that will help strengthen your faith. He said one of them is looking at how God takes care of the birds. Notice what he says. He says, consider. Now, the word consider is an interesting word because it, it can mean anything from casual glancing at something to really studying it out and, and observing fully. It's used in, in anything from to see, to look, to appear, and so forth. But what is used more often than any other place in the, any other uh, word in the Bible is to behold. 
Now, to behold means to take it something and really study it out, really, really look carefully, really pay attention to what you're seeing. You know as well as I do that you can make a casual glance or a quick glance at something and not really pay attention too much to what you see. You're aware of what was over there, but you can't give any details about it. We've played these games, you know, where something, somebody will rush into a room and the commotion will take place and then they'll leave the room real quick and then they'll try to, to get people to describe what did you see. And everybody saw a variety of different things. But to behold, literally this word consider, which is more, most often translated behold, means to look at it closely enough to where you see what's going on. And he says you can do that with the things that God created here on the earth to understand how God will take care of you. So he says, consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. In other words, they don't farm. They don't plant stuff for themselves to eat. Neither have storehouses nor barn. And God feeds them. How much better are you or how much more are you better than the fowls? And which of you with taking thought can add one stature to it, uh, can add to his stature one cubit? I, I really like this because Jesus is saying, and what good does worrying do anyway? Does it ever work for anybody? Somebody once said of worry is like a rocking chair. You don't get anywhere, but it keeps you busy. And that's what the devil's trying to get you to do. He's trying to keep you busy so that you don't look at and behold the important things. He goes further and says, if you then, verse 26, if you then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take you thought for the rest? In other words, if worrying doesn't work, why do you keep worrying? If you can't change anything by worrying, why do you keep doing it? That's a real good question, folks. I'm not trying to be super spiritual about anything, but if worry worked, we'd all be champions in life. Right? But it never works. So why do we keep doing something that doesn't work? Verse 27. Here's a second consider. Consider or behold the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they don't work, in other words. They spin not, they don't make anything for themselves. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Man's best effort can't take care of the smallest things that God creates. Can't hold a candle to it. If God then so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, in other words, it lasts just for a short while, how much more? Will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now, folks, I believe that he's talking about food and, and, and raiment or clothing to be uh, representative of all of the affairs and the cares of life. I don't think God's saying, now I'll pay you, uh, I'll, I'll uh, give you enough to eat and I'll make sure you have enough to wear, but, you know, rent, you're on your own. Making your house payment, you know, I'm sorry, that's just not part of the deal. I think he's talking about food and clothing as being representative of all of the cares that we have in this earth. In other words, if he'll take care of the things of the, of the, the field, the grass of the field, which isn't going to last, it's only around for the, for the uh, enjoyment of those that see it today, but by tomorrow it's going to be withered and died off and, and gone anyway. If God puts so much detail and so much care into something that is so temporary, why would he not take care of you? If he feeds the birds, why wouldn't he feed you? He goes on and says, and seek not, verse 29, and seek not what you shall eat or what you shall drink, neither ye be of doubtful mind. Now notice how he connects doubtful mind with take no thought in verse 24. 
For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. All these things mean all the things of this earth and natural things of life. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, God wants you to be, wants your natural needs to be met more than you want them to be met. God wants you to be taken care of naturally, physically, in your life, financially, more than you want Him to take care of you. That's what that means. But what I want you to see out of this whole story, there's a lot of things we could talk about with this, and, uh, and I'm sure these things would be a blessing, you know, depending on which way we came at it. But I want you to notice those two words, consider. The whole purpose that he's saying is control your thoughts. That's everything that he's talking about. You should control your thoughts knowing that God will take care of you better than he takes care of the birds and the grass of the field. But how are we going to know that unless we consider the birds and the grass of the field? Turn with me back to Romans chapter 4. Let's tie this into healing. Jesus is literally saying you can overcome the cares of this life by considering the right things. You can overcome the cares of this world and the needs that we have here on the earth by considering the right things. Because the problem's not on God's end. He's already said God wants to take care of you more than you want to be taken care of. God wants to do for you better than you would want to do for yourself. God already does better for the grass of the field, the lilies, than Solomon, as the richest king on the face of the earth, could do for himself as far as clothing himself. And it all comes down to considering or thinking on the right things. Romans chapter 4. We'll start in verse 17. Here's the story of Abraham. The Bible talks a lot about Abraham, not only in the Old Testament to tell us the, the, the story, the history of Abraham, but it tells us that Abraham is the father of our faith. In other words, it tells us to follow Abraham's example of faith. Now, what is Abraham's example of faith? Abraham's example of faith is all about what he considered. Did you hear me? Abraham's example of faith is all completely about what he considered and what he chose not to consider. In other words, what he thought on and what he chose not to think on. So we'll start in verse 17. Here's where here's the first promise that God makes regarding his uh, children, his seed. As it is written, the Old Testament tells us, in other words, God said, I have made thee the father of nations. Many nations, the father of many nations. Notice God always speaks in the past tense. God said, I have made you the father of nations. He said that to Abraham before Abraham ever had a child. As far as God's concerned, if he's planned it and if he said it, it's done. Now, that may not be the same case for you and me. We may look at the promises of God and say, well, God said it, but it's not done yet. But God looks at things from the standpoint that, If I said it, my word can't change. I cannot lie. Therefore, it is done. Whether you see it yet or not, whether it's materialized in this physical realm, whether it has taken place, so to speak, in the fullness of time that he planned it, when I said it, it's done. And that's when God, that's the way God spoke to Abraham. He said to Abraham before Abraham ever had children, I have made thee the father of many nations. Abraham is childless, and God says, I have made thee the father of many nations. 
Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Now, just that in and of itself would give you a lot of opportunity to worry. God said you're one thing, and you look at your life and look at your circumstances, and it looks like something else. Well, which one's right? Folks, let me give you a hint. God's always right. The devil wants to challenge that. The devil wants to say, well, that can't be true because look at your situation. In other words, he wants to make you of doubtful mind. He wants to make you anxious. He wants you to take thought to look away from what God has said. But God's always right. It's impossible for God for God to lie, and it's impossible for God's word to not come to pass. It's impossible. Heaven and earth will pass away. Everything you see here, everything that the devil would distract you by looking at or trying to get you to look at here will pass away, but God's word will never fail. It's impossible for God's word to fail. So God says to Abraham, while he's childless, he said, I have made thee the father of many nations. Now, this is talking about Abraham's relationship with God before him whom he believed, even God. In other words, it says Abraham believed God who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. I always like to say this this way on this verse. The last two phrases, last two clauses in this uh, uh, 17th verse is God's job description. God makes dead things alive and calls things that be not as though they are. That's what he does. That's just who he is. He makes dead things alive. And he calls things that be not as though they are. And that's certainly speaking from a natural standpoint, a physical standpoint. It's speaking from the, from the perspective of the physical realm. Because when he said to Abraham, I have made thee the father of many nations, he's calling things that be not as though they are. He's saying to Abraham, who doesn't have any children, I've made you the father of nations. That's the way God operates. That may not be the way that we operate. That's not to say we can't learn to operate that way and should learn to operate that way. But that's the way God always operates. Whether you do or not, God always operates that way. He calls things that be not as though they were. He says things that don't appear from your physical eye, from the natural eye. He says things that don't appear to be true to be fact. And he can't lie. So it says in verse 18, again, speaking of Abraham, here's Abraham's experience with faith, the faith that we're supposed to follow. It says, who against hope? In other words, since he wasn't the father of nations and he's too old to have children, he had no natural hope to, to, to uh, he had no natural circumstance to base his hope upon. So who against or who without hope nevertheless believed in hope? Well, if he doesn't have any natural circumstance to base his hope in, what is he going to put his hope upon? You've got to have some reason to hope. Otherwise, it's just, a, it's just a wild thought. Hope has to have a foundation, just like faith has to have a foundation. So what's his hope based in? What's his hope grounded in? Who against hope, without any natural circumstances to hope in, believed in hope. And it tells you what he based his hope in, according to that which was spoken. According to that which was spoken. Now, what was his hope? Well, you see what his hope was based in. He based his hope in what God said. I have made thee the father of nations. What is the end result of his hope? He wants to become the father of nations. So what does he base his hope upon? What God said. 
the thing that God said, calling things that be not as though they were, the thing that God said that doesn't appear to be true, that's what he put his hope in. Because after all, it's God saying it. Verse 19. And being not weak in faith. Do you know that's a choice? And being not weak in faith. He considered. Here's that word again. He considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old. Neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, Abraham made a choice as to what he was going to look at. He made a choice as to what he was going to study. He made a choice as to what he was going to focus his attention on. He made a choice. And it tells us, first of all, what he chose not to focus his attention on. He chose not to focus his attention on his body and the condition of his, of his physical body. Now, he and Sarah are too old to have children. That's a fact. But he's got God's promise who said... I have made thee the father of nations. So Abraham has a choice. And it's the same choice that you and I have. It's the same choice that we have concerning healing or any other thing that God has promised to us. And that is when the promise of God contradicts our physical circumstances, we have the choice to either look to the physical circumstances and say, well, that's it. I'll believe it when I see things change. Or we can do what Abraham did, what the Bible encourages us to encourages us to do in following his example of faith and say, regardless of the circumstances, I'm going to believe God's word. Now, you know, the problem with this time, because anybody can do that initially. The problem with faith is time. Because everything about the devil's operation, he does not care. If you start off and say, I believe God's word. Yes, healing belongs to me. Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with his stripes I'm healed. He could not care less about you making that start. The question is, how are you going to finish? And more people start well than finish well. So he doesn't care. It's not a big deal for him for you to make your declaration of faith because that's when he knows for most cases, or for most people, in any most cases, all he's got to do is turn up the heat a little bit. All he's got to do is send you a couple of circumstances, a couple of physical circumstances, maybe a pain here and there. All he's got to do is to make some kind of distraction to get you to look away from the word that you started on to thinking about, well, why isn't this working? What's wrong? Maybe I don't have enough faith. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in in, uh, material things in Luke chapter 12. He said, don't take any thought for your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, or any of those things. Well, those are important things, aren't they? They're real important when you don't have any food in the refrigerator. They're real important when you're out of clothes and you've got a big meeting, something that you need to go to and don't have anything to wear. Those are real important issues, right? So what are we going to do about those issues? Well, the devil wants to get you thinking about what can I do instead? What can I do to make this happen instead of just trusting God? He tries to make you anxious, tries to make you worry, and he tries to tear you apart in your thought life. In other words, he tries to tear your thoughts away from where you start to thinking about something else. And that's exactly what he does when where healing is concerned, where sickness is concerned. You may start off with the word of God on healing, 
Because the Bible says, unequivocally, the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, you can find some people that will argue and say, well, that doesn't mean uh, the, the people that live today. That means the people that lived in Jesus' day. But the same scripture that says he was wounded for our transgressions says that with his stripes we were healed. So the same hour for transgressions is ours for iniquities and sickness. So if the hour doesn't mean us today presently for healing, then the hour can't mean us today for forgiveness of sins. You can't have it both ways. Our either has to mean us, everybody, or just them. But it's the same hour, the same word O-U-R, that's used for transgressions and sins, that's used for infirmities and sicknesses. So you choose. I'm pretty sure I know who our means. If we use the word in our conversation today, it means whoever else we're talking about and us included. That's why we say our. So the Bible says unequivocally that healing belongs to us. Jesus took at the same time, the same event, the same crucifixion, that Jesus took uh, took our sins upon himself. He took our sicknesses upon himself. No difference whatsoever. Same blood shed for sins as was shed for sickness. Anybody that says otherwise is being dishonest. No question about it. So what does the devil do? He tries to take our thoughts away from the word of God that says unequivocally that healing is ours to try to make us think about something else. But our example to follow is Abraham's example who had a situation, a physical situation that was certainly as dire, certainly as as critical, certainly as hopeless as any physical condition of sickness that anybody's ever faced in their lives. Abraham was facing an impossible situation. Oh, but Pastor Mike, the doctor's given up on me. Well, Abraham's facing giving up on himself as far as having children is concerned. So Abraham, verse 19 again, and being not weak in faith. I love that verse 19 starts off with that. In other words, Abraham made a decision. I'm not going to be weak in faith. Making that decision will make a huge difference in your life. I'm not going to be weak in faith. It is a choice. There's not lucky ones that are strong in faith and then others that are weak in faith. It's a choice. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He considered not. It doesn't say he denied it. He didn't go around confessing, I'm not 100 years old. I'm not 100 years old. I'm not 100 years old. That would be reversing what the Bible says in verse 17. That would be calling things that are as if they were not. And faith doesn't do that. Faith doesn't deny the circumstance. Abraham did not deny the circumstance. He just chose not to consider it. In other words, he didn't look as closely at that as he looked at something else. Well, what was the something else he looked at? Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Let me read this to you from another another version. It's the American Standard Version. If I can bring it up here. American Standard Version says in verse 20, Yet looking unto the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. Verse 19 tells us what he didn't look at, what he didn't consider, what he didn't focus his attention on, and that was his physical condition. Well, what did he focus his attention on? 
He focused his attention on the promise of God. Yet looking under the promise of God. I love that. Yet looking under the promise of God. What does that mean? That means he made a choice. He made a distinct choice what he's going to look at. I've got my physical condition on one hand that I can look at or I can look at the promise of God on the other hand. Which one am I going to focus my attention on? It's certainly true that my body's 100 years old and I'm about dead. Certainly dead as far as having children is concerned. That's true. That's a fact. Don't want to deny the facts. But it's not about denying the facts, folks. It's about what you choose to look at. It's about what you choose to consider. Yet looking under the promise of God. He chose to look away from the facts of his body, the circumstances in his body, to look unto the promise of God. What was the promise of God? I have made you the father of nations. I have made you the father of nations. Yet looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. What does it mean that he didn't waver? He wavered not through unbelief. What does that mean? That means he looked at the promise of God and only at the promise of God. That doesn't, that means he did not look at his body one day and look at the promise of God the next day. It doesn't mean that he looked five days a week at the promise of God and the other two days he considered, oh man, my body's still just the same as it was. It means he wavered not specifically, meaning he considered the promise of God and considered it only. Now, folks, I would submit to you that most of the faith battles that you fight really have nothing to do with the word. And here's what I mean by that. The things that the devil will try to distract you with have nothing to do with the truth of the word. He's simply trying to get you to look at something else. And one of the greatest ways that I've ever found to deal with the devil is he'll say, yeah, look at your body. How do you feel today? And I'll always turn it around and say, how does that change the word? I won't even answer. I'll just ask the question, how would that change the word? Well, it looks like you're not going to have enough money this month. How does that change the word? If I'll say that long enough, those thoughts will stop coming to me. Because really nothing the devil tries to get you distracted by changes the truth of the word. For example, the devil could come to Abraham and say, do you realize how old you are? How does that change the word? How does that change the promise of God? Do you know that nobody has ever had a child your age or older? And you're not getting any younger. How does that change the promise of God? That's what the devil tries to tell me. Isn't that the way he works on you too? Doesn't he try to tell you how impossible it is? Doesn't he try to tell you how there's no way for this to work? And then he'll show you some circumstance or he'll show you something that seems to be the obstacle or that he wants you to focus your attention on. Well, how did any of those things change the word? I've had people come to me over and over and over again. This has happened so many times, I can't tell you how many. I've had people come to me, Pastor Mike, agree with me. Agree with me that, that I won't get laid off from my job. Agree with me that I'll have what I need. My needs will be met and all this kind of stuff. Next week, they'll come around and say, they're laying off people next week. How does that change the word? I, I, I've got more bills than I've even thought I had. How does that change the word? We believe, God, that your needs would be met in Jesus' name. You see what I'm trying to say, folks? The devil always tries to distract you with things that are irrelevant. That doesn't mean they may not be factual because he may show you the facts of the situation. He may show you circumstantial facts, but it doesn't change the word of God. 
Yeah, but the doctor says I'm getting worse. How does that change the promise of God? That's what it means where Abraham considered not his own body. And yet he can, instead he considered the word. Yet, verse, nine, uh, verse 20 again, it says, Yet looking unto the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. Verse 21, And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. You know, I, I, th- I think a lot of times we look over this one too quickly. Are you convinced that God can do what he said he would do? It doesn't come automatically. It comes through consideration. It doesn't come because you find a scripture and say, well, that's part of the book. So, yeah, that has to be true. It comes because you consider, wait a minute, the God of the universe said he'd do this for me. The God of the universe said he'd meet my needs. It'd be nice for us to say, well, we looked at past experiences where God bailed us out before. And so since he bailed us out before, we'll know we know that he'll bail us out again. Well, what if you come to a situation that's bigger this time than it was last time? Maybe God was stretched to the limit last time to come through. Abraham was fully persuaded. In other words, he put some thought into this. The book of Hebrews tells us a little bit about Abraham's uh, thought process where it tells us that Isaac, some, um, well, what, probably 17, 18 years after this event that's being described in Romans chapter 4, when Isaac um, uh, was, where Abraham was commanded to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. God never told him, kill your son. But he said, offer him up as a sacrifice. So Abraham takes him up onto the mountain. He's got all the stuff of the sacrifice. Isaac says, what are we going to sacrifice? And Abraham says, well, we need to talk. He lays him on the altar. Isaac certainly is able to overpower his dad and keep this from happening. If he's not a, a, a partner to this, if he's not believing God himself, he could easily have overpowered his 117-year-old dad going down the mountain on his own. But he allows himself to be laid on the, laid on the altar. And the Bible says that Abraham raised the knife, willing to go through with it, and the angel stopped him. Now, Hebrews chapter 11 says that Abraham had thought this out to such a degree that he was willing to believe. He was believing God. He already was believing God that if it took raising Isaac from the dead, that's what God would do. And it even says that he had already received him as risen from the dead in a figure. In other words, he focused his attention. He considered this thing so much. He said, now, wait a minute. God told me, he said, his thought process would have been something along this line. God told me that Isaac would be who I would be blessed through to all generations. If Isaac dies, I can't be the father of nations that God promised that I'd be. Isaac can't die. Or if he dies, then God has to raise him from the dead so that he can continue on my line. And the Bible says that he was so convinced of this that even before he ever got Isaac on the altar, he received Isaac as if Isaac had already been raised from the dead. He told the people down below, he said, we're going up to the mountain to sacrifice uh, unto God and we're coming back again. He's already said it. He's already said it and we'll be coming back. We meaning us, both us, me and Isaac. That tells me a little bit about, about Abraham's thought process. 
Abraham's not just doing this, what people call blind faith, hoping things work out. No, he sought this thing out. God has to raise my child up. If he, if he, if I have to go through this thing and put a knife to his throat and, and, and kill my son, God will raise him from the dead. We're coming back down off this mountain. You get things settled in your mind to that degree. There's not a lot of room for the devil to bring doubt. And I think that's an area that most people don't do. They don't undertake. But that's what verse 21 means. And being fully persuaded. Being fully persuaded. Abraham was easily or just as fully persuaded in having the child as he was in Isaac being raised from the dead 17 years later if he had to be. And being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Now, folks, what I want you to understand is it was his faith that justified him before God, not the having the child. It was his faith that was settled before he ever had the child, before Sarah ever got pregnant. It was the faith that he settled within himself that caused him to be justified before God. And that's the faith that the Bible tells us to follow. See, if the Bible's telling us just to follow Abraham's example, then we could all believe God to have children at 100 years old. I don't know about you, but I'm not really interested in that. It's not saying follow Abraham's faith in the sense that he had a child at age 100 and his wife was 90, so you and your wife can do the same thing or you and your husband can do the same thing. That's not what it's telling us. It's telling us to follow his example of faith. His example of faith is to be justified before it ever comes to pass. And there's only one way to do that, and that is by considering the word. Turn back with me to to, uh, Numbers chapter 21. Let me show you an Old Old Testament example of this. Numbers chapter 21. The previous chapter tells us about some things that happened with Israel. Uh, One of them we'll make mention of. And that was that uh, uh, Israel is, uh, is on their way from point A to point B. And the land of Edom is in direct line between those two points. And so Moses sends word to the king of Edom and says, listen, my people need to go through on our way to somewhere else, and we want permission to travel through your land. Now, we won't do anything to hurt the land. We won't even drink from the wells because we're a big group of people, and, you know, you can't take several million people through a piece of land and not have some effect on it. He said, but we won't even go by the king's highway. We won't mess up the, the, the terrain. We won't drink from the water. We'll take care of all that on our own. All we want is permission to cut through your land to get to where we want to go. And the king of Edom put up a big stink about it. And he said, no, you're not going to come in our land, in our borders at all. And if you do, if you try to, then I'll send my army out. And he wound up sending the army out to stand on the border to keep Israel from going around or going through. So that meant to get to where God had told them to go, they had to go the long way around. Don't you hate that? Some of the places that God wants you to go, you're going to have to go the long way around. There is no shortcut for many things. And the Bible says in Numbers chapter 21 
that they're going the long way around. Verse 4, and they journey from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. That means to encircle it since they can't go through. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. It's discouraging when you have to go the long way around. It's discouraging when God doesn't fix things for you to take shortcuts. It's discouraging when things don't happen as quickly as you want them to take. And instead, they take much longer because you're having to go all the long way around. And most of the long way around for us is a character-building exercise. And who likes that? That's where most people give up. Most people give up before they ever get to harvest time because they can't handle the character-building part of the exercise. They can't handle the growing time. How many people have you heard of that said, well, I tried that faith stuff and that doesn't work? You know what that means? That means they said the right thing to begin with and they gave up during the process. Now, they want to blame God. They want to say, I did my part. Man, I waited a week. So that faith in in God's word, that stuff doesn't work the way that they preach it. When all the time they're the ones that have shortchanged themselves, they've cheated themselves. Because they got discouraged because of time. The issue with faith is always time, folks. If Jesus had said, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them for 30 minutes and you shall have them. Everybody would be a master of faith. Isn't that true? The thing that always gets people, the thing that always causes them to turn loose of the promise of God and turn around and, and, and go a different way and come up with some different plan or some different idea or some different belief is time. Always. More people get discouraged because of the time involved and whatever is going on during that time than any other thing. That's what this story is about. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The longer something takes, and the more the devil tries to tell you that it's not going to work, the more he knows there is great victory on the other side of this road. This journey is going to end in great victory, and I've got to stop them now. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God. Notice what happens when people get discouraged. It first shows up in their mouths, in their words. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Now, what was the alternative to this? They could have gone through Edom. All they had to do is fight them. God told them not to, but, you know, that hadn't had a lot of effect on them so far. Obeying God hadn't been a real highlight of their experience up to this point. They could have gone to war with Edom. That would have been a lot better, wouldn't it? Everybody enjoys that. So they spoke against God and against Moses and said, Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? It's all Moses' fault. Now, the only reason they're in the wilderness is because six chapters earlier, they refused to go into the promised land because they spoke against God and said, We can't take the land that God said is ours. So that's the only reason they're out there now. They should be in the land of Canaan conquering city after city, and taking possession of the promised land. But no, they messed up. 
God told him in chapter 14, here's the unchanging law of God. As you have spoken in my ear, so shall I do unto you. So what happens when things get discouraging a few chapters down the road? They speak against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this like bread. We hate this manna. We've got a miracle happening in front of us every day, and we can't stand it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people, died, much of, the people of Israel died. Now, there's a problem with this verse of Scripture because this is contrary to what Jesus says that God does. Jesus said in John chapter 10, The thief comes but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and might have it more abundantly. So it's either one way or the other. God's either killing people with fiery serpents or he's the one that makes people live. You can't have it both ways. God can't be killing people on one hand and making people live on the other hand. The Bible says that God is only one way and there's no variableness, neither shadow of turning in him. That means he can't be making people sick and healing them at the same time. Making some people sick, healing other people. That's not the way he works. So what does that mean? That means either God is the one that brings sickness upon people or the devil is the one that brings sickness upon people. It's got to be one or the other. Jesus said it's the latter. He said the devil is the one that kills, steals, and destroys. Everything that kills, everything that steals, and everything that destroys has got to be of the devil if Jesus told us the truth in John 10.10. But he said, in giving us an example of what God is like, showing us the character and the nature of God, he said, I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. That means anything that overcomes the results of killing, stealing, and destroying is of God. That sounds kind of like making dead things live. Like Romans 4.17 says. Well, how do we explain the scripture? Well, Dr. Young, Dr. Robert Young said in his uh, uh, out-of-print book, it's out-of-print now, you can find uh, um, references to it. There are references that are still available, and you can get those sources online. But the book is out-of-print. I've been looking for it for years, never have found one. And the book is called Hints to Bible Interpretation. And in that book, he identifies that the Hebrew has a, a permissive tense to the verb that the English language doesn't have. And in most cases, that permissive tense was translated into English by the translators, the King James translators, in the causative sense. Now, the Bible says, in, in, uh, well, how are we going to know? I mean, if we just take that at face value, it, Dr. Young is right. There's no question about that being true in the, as far as the languages are concerned. But how are you going to know? How are you going to know whether it should be causative or permissive? On one hand, it's, like, it's saying that God allowed something. On the other hand, it's saying that God caused it. Now, when I say the word allow, I'm not saying it like a lot of people do. Why did God allow this sickness on my life? He could have stopped it. He should have stopped it. If he was a good God, he would have stopped it. Why did he allow me to get sick? That's not what I mean by the word allow. The fact is, the Bible says that your decisions determine how God responds. We just referred to a scripture over in Rome, in uh Numbers chapter 14, where God said, here's the unchanging law of God. As you have spoken in my ears, so shall I do unto you. In other words, your words control God's reaction to you. Your words control, not God's. 
not what he wants. If it was up to God and what he wants, we'd already be out of here and into heaven. Because the Bible says it's the will of God for every man to be saved. Well, if every man was saved because it was the will of God and that's the reason and the, the, the method whereby people got saved just being God's will, then everybody would already be saved. But that's not the way it works. Jesus said, whosoever will, let him come unto me. In other words, it's man's will that controls things, not God's will. But when you submit your will to his will, man, now you got a, a promising situation. Now you can get supernatural results. So Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is warning the people, saying, now when you go into the promised land, Moses is about to go off the scene. He says, when you go into the promised land, remember, after you start building your good houses and eat your good foods and all this stuff, the promises of the, the blessings of the promised land come to pass in, in, in you and for you. He said, remember that you make sure that you don't forget God. And one of the things he says, this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 15. He said, who led you through the wilderness where were, wherein there were scorpions and fiery serpents. In other words, the, serpent, the serpents, the fiery serpents were already in the land. So rather than looking at this as God causing the serpents to come in, we need to recognize that all the time that the people were not murmuring against God and were not disobeying God, God was supernaturally keeping the serpents away from them. In other words, there was divine protection at work, and they weren't even aware of it. But as soon as they spoke against Moses and spoke against God, they broke that protection, that divine protection that was around the children of Israel. And so the fiery serpents came into the camp and bit the people. That's what this means in verse 6. And they bit the people. The fiery serpents came in among the people. They bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. They didn't say God did us wrong. They said, We're the ones that have done wrong here. We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord. You know, it's an amazing thing that for 40 years in the wilderness, they never learned this lesson. They'd have moments of clarity where they'd say, oh, man, we did it again. We spoke against God. But the next opportunity that came around and spoke against God, to speak against God, they took it for 40 years until everybody in that generation died out. Therefore, the people said to Moses, came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. They knew God was their answer. Now, how did God bring the answer? And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looks upon it shall live. Now, hold your finger here. We're going to come back and talk about the rest of the story. But I want you to turn with me over to, to uh, John chapter 3. Have any of you, are any of you familiar with John chapter 3 and verse 16? Any of you ever heard of that scripture? It's the one that most people say is their favorite. I'm not sure that that's really the case. Most of the people that seem to be saying that don't know much about what's in the Bible, and so that's one they just happen to know. John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what's Jesus talking about? Isn't he talking about everlasting life, eternal life? Back up a couple of verses to verse 14, and notice what Jesus is saying now, we know that, the, that the, the, the means whereby eternal life came to mankind was Jesus dying on the cross, right? Everybody agrees to that. 
And notice what Jesus said about the crucifixion experience and what he identified that crucifixion experience with. John chapter 3, verse 14, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Now, here's the point I want you to see. The only place in Scripture that the, the uh, Numbers 21 uh, event takes place or is referred to is in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking about his own crucifixion. And he says the crucifixion is just like Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. So it would be foolish for us to take the Numbers 21 ex- example the story in Numbers chapter 21 and say, well, that's just talking about something that happened back then for Israel and only for Israel when Jesus said that it was the very same type that is being fulfilled through the crucifixion, his death on the cross. With that in mind, let's go back to Numbers 21. Let's back up to verse 7 again. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said, here's the method. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. Now, if this is a type of Jesus, why is it not a lamb? Isn't Jesus the lamb that was slain for mankind? Jesus has just told us in John chapter 3, we have the benefit of being able to go to fast forward and see what Jesus said about this. Jesus said this was a type of him. This meaning what Moses did in the wilderness is a type of him on the cross. Then why isn't it a lamb? Jesus is the lamb of God slain for the world. Why not a lamb? Because on the cross, Jesus did not represent God. On the cross, Jesus represented man and the penalty for that which had separated man from God, which was sin. On the cross, Jesus represented sin. In other words, the fiery serpent, which is always a type of or representative of the devil, is what Jesus represented hanging on the cross. So God said, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. Now, the word looketh upon is in the, is in the Hebrew. The original, uh, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament written in Greek. The equivalent of the word consider that we looked at in Luke chapter 12 and Romans chapter 4 is this word look. And it could be anything from a casual glance to really bearing down and paying attention to what you're seeing. And notice what he said. Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Why would God tell them to look upon something that represents the devil and death? The serpent is the cause of the death that has taken place in the, among the camp. 
Why would he tell them to look at something that typifies or illustrates or represents, whatever word you want to use there, the death that they've experienced? Well, he's telling them to look at something that represents Jesus and the sacrifice he's going to make. But notice that looking upon, considering, beholding that fiery serpent on the pole is going to bring them physical healing. Now, why? Jesus certainly knows the story. Jesus certainly knows, along with the rest of the Jews, they certainly know what the end result of the story was, and that was those that were bitten were healed. How does looking at something on a pole heal you from poisonous venom, snake venom? You know as well as I do that the only way to to, uh, uh, prevent a snake venom from killing you is you got to cut up X's on the marks of the snake and suck that stuff out. I'm being facetious. Certainly they have antivenom toxins and stuff like that nowadays. But I grew up in the South. And, boy, that was the big scary thing. Because every now and then you'd see that on a cowboy show. Somebody gets snake bit and you have to get a knife and cut it. To... Oh, man. We looked out for snakes. I was looking at, looking at something on a pole heal you from a snake bite. We're talking about a supernatural result. You understand that, don't you? We're not talking about a natural result or something, some natural form that overcomes poisonous venom. We're talking about a supernatural result. And notice that the Lord said that the key to these people living that had been bitten, the ones that haven't died yet, Here's the key for everybody that has been bitten and is still alive to live free from the effects of this snake bite. To look at the representative hanging on the pole. Jesus identifies that that's him. He's the only one that would. Who would know better than him? Now, what's going on here? When it says that uh, the Lord gave them the answer... Notice what their request was. Moses, pray that God will take away the snakes. Well, even if he does take away the snakes, the people that are bitten still are are subject to death. There's two things here at play. One is getting the snakes out of the camp. And the second is healing the people that have already been bitten. And notice that God didn't say a word about taking the snakes out of the camp. Now, that seems to me to be a real important part of the story here. Because if I haven't been bitten, if I'm part of the camp, the people of Israel, and I haven't been bitten, I certainly want those that have been bitten to get help, but I'm concerned about the snakes that are still there. Wouldn't you be? Not a word is said about that. Now, does the Bible just forget to tell us that part? I mean, that's a lot like God. I mean, he just kind of covers over the details, right? Well, if it's not inadvertently omitted, then why is it missing? Because, folks, it has everything to do with looking at the pole. He's telling people to look at the pole even while there are snakes at your feet. You remember where we started? Take no thought for your life what you'll eat or what you drink or what you're going to wear. Consider the ravens. God takes care of the birds. Consider the lilies. 
He takes care of them. They're just temporary. He'll take care of you even better than that. In other words, he's saying, consider the right things. The story, the real crux of this story is to teach us to look at what Jesus has done for us, to look at the promise of the word, even when there's snakes and circumstances at your feet. It's easy to look at the pole when there's nothing else to look at anyway. But how often is that the case in our lives? He's telling these people to keep your eyes on what Jesus represents. He's telling people keep your eyes on that which Jesus has done, irrespective of the circumstances going on around your feet. Irrespective of what the devil may be doing to try to distract you. Irrespective of, now, now, I think of fiery serpents. I don't know what fiery serpents were there. I think of fiery serpents as rattlesnakes. Rattlesnakes were the big ones where I grew up in the South, you know. They weren't even the most poisonous one, but boy, you could hear them. That made them double scary. So if we imagine these snakes as being rattlesnakes, he's saying it doesn't matter if you hear a snake rattling at your feet. You look at the pole. It doesn't matter if you feel something slither across your foot. You look at the pole. It doesn't matter if somebody else looks away and says, oh, my gosh, look at how many there are. You look at the pole. And, folks, that's everything about Abraham's example of faith. He had everything else in the world that he could have looked at, but he chose to look only at the promise of God. And back to where we started. Jesus said, if God takes care of the small details to feed the birds and clothe the grass of the field, is he not going to take care of you? If that's true for the things that we eat and the things that we wear are concerned, how much more true would that be of our physical healing? Consider the word. You may be facing some real serious circumstances. You may be facing some what looks to be crisis situations. But consider the word. Because heaven and earth will pass away. All those circumstances will pass away. But God's word will never fail. God will see you through. We got an email from somebody not too long ago. Well, three or four weeks ago, I guess now. And, uh, and this person got a hold of us, found us uh, on TV, first of all, and then that uh, sent them to the website, and they started listening on, online. And, and uh, I think they even called in and ordered some stuff from the, from the office. And uh, they were in a real serious situation with cancer. Doctors had uh, one, when they first started uh, corresponding with us, there was one more test that the doctors could do, and if that didn't work, they didn't know what they were going to do then. Well, they, they went through their tests and went through their, their final treatment, whatever it was, and, and the doctor said, well, that didn't work, you know, after a couple of weeks, whatever period of time it was. That didn't work, so we're, we're pretty much out of, out of stuff. We can maybe try some experimental stuff, but insurance companies won't pay for, in, for experimental stuff, and it's real expensive, and, and so it wound up being the last thing they could do. There were no other options. And so she said that, uh, that she was stage 4 cancer, diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, uh, at the time that they, that she found the TV program and just happened to be running a healing school. And um, so that got her attention. And, and so she went online, started listening. She said, I've listened to you over and over and over again. I know your stories. I know what you're going to say next. I've heard everything that I can hear on healing. And I, I thought that's kind of funny because that's what I did with Brother Hagen. I, I could tell his stories better than he could. And so she said, I've heard everything that's available online on the subject of healing. That's what she knew her need was, and so that's what she focused on. So she said, 
I kept hearing you say, no matter what, just believe God's word. She said, I don't know what, what message I heard you say that on, but whatever message that was, you said it like five or six times. Whatever happens, just keep believing God's word. She said, that got inside me. She said, I would wake up, and the first thing I'd hear in the morning would you be saying in my head, whatever happens, just believe God's word. She said, I went through this for several days, and I kept hearing that, and it kept going over and over and over again in my head. I just kept ringing in my ears. And she said, then the doctor had some final checkup or something like that. He wanted to, to check my progress or whatever and came back with the worst possible news. And she said, as soon as he told me what was, what was the diagnosis or what was the result of his examination, whatever it was, she said, I heard you say, whatever happens, just keep believing God's word. Well, the short of the story is that she took the word of God and changed the situation. Now the doctors are saying that it was a faulty uh, equipment or, or whatever because now they can't find it. They won't admit that anything supernatural has happened. But there's something that was wrong with the, with the equipment. Couldn't have been the doctor's fault. So it had to be something wrong with the equipment that caused them to base their diagnosis on. And, and nobody can explain it. They're wanting to send her to a specialist so that they can examine her and show the, the before x-rays and the after x-rays and all this kind of stuff. Because what they had, what she had, is completely gone. She said, I still hear that ringing in my ears. Whatever happens, just keep believing God's word. Folks, God's word can't fail. It works every time. All it takes is faith mixed with it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for the privilege that we have to consider your word. Father, I'm reminded of the scripture in the, in the Proverbs that says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. So often, Father, we're wanting you to do the work for us. So often we're wanting the easy way out. But, Father, we choose to follow Abraham's example of faith and being not weak in faith. We choose to consider not the circumstances as the final word on our subject. We choose instead to look under the promise of God and waver not through unbelief, but expect everything that you promised us, the healing, the health, the divine health, the deliverance, everything that you said belongs to us in the name of Jesus. We choose to consider that and only that to be the final word, the final truth in our lives. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours, that deliverance is ours, according to your word, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.